Hello, welcome to the Bloody Bizarre Podcast. You sounded scared. <laughs> it's like someone's got a gun to Hello. my head. <laughs> uh, I'm Emma. I'm Sarah. <coughs> oh yeah, Sarah's sick again, which is absolutely yucky. I'm sick again. Um, if you listen to the episode two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was sick then. And yeah, I'm sick again separately. It's just obvious that you're not healthy. Yeah, I am, and that happens when I'm pregnant. Like, I, I don't want to complain, obviously. Being pregnant is like, you know, a lot of people... A miracle. But yeah, a lot of people try really hard and that's all they want. Um, so you're not, not complaining. not complaining. You're just pointing out... Pointing out that for me, I am not my best when I'm pregnant my immune system I mean, who is? sucks. I get really sick at the start. I don't eat well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm tired yeah. all the time. It's just, it's not a good time for me. It's almost like people aren't meant to be pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get started because I do have a, an extremely long one this week. Yes. Okay. Oh, you said this one's like 14 pages. Hey, this is 14 pages. My longest one yet. Yeah. I went deep. So my sources, my favorite murder episode 307 titled friend cracker reveal history article by Kieran Mulvaney, Wikipedia, Piers Paul Reed's book alive, the story of the Andy survival and the you're wrong about podcast. Tippity tappity feet. If you hear tippity tappity feeties, that's Mr. Patchman, Sarah's dog. He's just walking through the room this time. He always has some different thing that he adds, like either snoring or barking or snorting. So or sniffing into the microphone. Yeah, he's got he's got a rep- repertoire that yeah. he psych was through. Yeah, that one was the tippity tappity. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy the old razzle dazzle. Yeah. So, so um, yes, this is a last minute pivot that I undertook mm-hmm. uh, about two days ago. Um, I was working on a, on a survival story. The survival story I was working on is going to take a little bit longer. So, um, and I was facing a little bit of writer's block with it, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. So, um, what do you do when you want to quit? Do something else. You quit. <laughs> well, no, it's not quitting because you're still going to do it just at a later time. Never I, persevere. I get, <laughs> I get that sometimes um, with certain ones where I find that there's a really good documentary series about it or there's a book I want to read about it. And so I'm like, well, I don't have time to do that yet. Yeah. So I can either do it half-assed or I can put it on the to-be-researched yeah, pile yeah. and do it later. Um, so I have um, I have some books that I've read already that I want to write about. So it's, then it's going to require me to go back through the book and like annotate. Yeah, which is a bit of a ball ache. Yeah, um, ball ache. <laughs> tingles my testes. You know, I haven't, I haven't heard that one for a really long time. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So instead, today I'm covering a story that was suggested to me by listener Dan, husband of Jen. Oh yeah, um, loyal friends. Much more importantly, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, today I'm covering The Miracle in the Andes, the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crash and subsequent events. Oh, shit. There is a really, yeah, there's a really famous movie um, called Alive about these events. I'm going to issue a blanket apology up top for pronunciation that's attempted during this episode. It's going to be bad and it's going to shame me for sure. What um, language? Yeah. Spanish. Spanish. (laughs) But you studied Spanish at the school of Duolingo for many years. How many years? But 900 days. days. (laughs) It's like three, three years, two and a bit years. But um, the problem is there's names. And there's also like place names, like cities that I have no idea 
about. So it's also probably, well, does Uruguay speak Spanish or like Portuguese? Probably Spanish. I have no idea, to be honest. And there's also like different dialects that I'm not aware of, you know. So let's go back to the 70s. Groovy. Specifically, October 12th, 1972. We're focusing on a group of young men who had all attended a Christian Brothers school. Apparently at the time in Uruguay, soccer or football to you and I, no, sorry, soccer to you and I, football to the Europeans that are listening, was and is, I guess, the most popular sport in the region. But the Christian Brothers believed that soccer led to egotism. So instead they insisted on rugby being the sport that was played. The Christian Brothers School is that the same as the Christian Brothers Schools that were here in Australia? I reckon. I reckon same kind of slant to them. Our dad went to one of those. Yeah. Apparently they were not good. No. No, no, no. So the Christian Brothers uh, weren't allowed to hit the boys because most of them were from wealthy families who demanded their children not be assaulted. Uh, They hit the ones back here. They sure did. (laughs) But maybe they weren't wealthy schools. Mm. So they implemented rugby as they thought it would have the same effect. So they were just like, we just want to hurt these kids. But they also were like, we can't hurt them directly. So let's just watch them get hurt in any way we can. Yeah. They they claimed that it was like, they were like rugby teachers, like pragmatism and like all this kind of stuff. They want them to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. But it did not have the same effect as hitting a child because the boys loved rugby. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking idiots. (laughs) And so after they'd graduated from the school, they formed an alumni club to continue playing rugby, naming it the Old Christians. I'm sorry. It's just really funny to me that they're like, what is kind of similar to abuse? Oh, I know. Team sport. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They'll slam their bodies into each other and it'll feel like a smack. It'll hurt. So that's the same as an adult hitting them with a weapon. For discipline. (laughs) Um. So the amateur rugby team, the Old Christians from Montevideo, Uruguay, were scheduled to play a match in Santiago, Chile. They were playing against the Old Boys Club, which was an English team. It was kind of an exhibition game. Uh They were all very pumped for it. President of the Old Christians Club, Daniel Juan, chartered a Uruguayan Air Force twin turboprop Fairchild FH-227D to fly the team over the Andes to Santiago. The aircraft carried 40 passengers and five crew members. This was comprised of 19 of the rugby team, team doctors, coaches, uh, and as there were an extra 10 seats, the team invited a few friends and family members to accompany them. At the last minute following a cancelled seat, mother Graziella Mariani also decided to travel with the team so she could attend her oldest daughter's wedding. There was also the plane crew on board, um, so pilots and cabin crew. The pilot of the plane was Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas. He was an experienced Air Force pilot who had a total of 5,117 flying hours. It sounded good to me. Yeah, it's all going to sound good to you. <laughs> Duolingo would have a field day assessing my pronunciation. She would be so angry. Um, well, she failed you, so. She did not fail me. She really? Did, really? She did not fail me. You she tell me that with a straight face. <laughs> Duolingo, she did not fail me. She just said, no, you've lost your streak. And then I said, okay, well, I'm out. Yeah, but... Can you speak Spanish after 900 days? I don't think that's important. (laughs) Back to the story. So um, he was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagorara. Hang on. Lagorara. Lagorada. Lagorara. Rara at the end. Lagorara. Pilot Faradas had flown across the Andes 29 times previously. So he was pretty, you know, adept at this. On this flight, he was training the co-pilot, Lagorara, who was at the controls. So the co-pilot was controlling this flight. Yeah. 
The aircraft was four years old and had 792 airframe hours. It was regarded by some pilots as underpowered and had been nicknamed by them as the lead sled. Ugh, that's yeah. not... Doesn't bode super yeah, well. Bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, maybe. So as mentioned, on the 12th of October 1972, the plane departed Carrasco International Airport, headed for Santiago. However, a storm front forced... Carrasco? Yeah. Is that spelt the same as the drink? No. Okay. C-A-R-R-A-S-C-O. Okay. Yeah. Not Curacao. Yeah. <laughs> no, Carrasco. Um, but a storm front forced the plane to land in Mendoza, Argentina, for the night. Now, there's a relatively direct route from Mendoza to Santiago, and it's only about 200 kilometers or 120 miles to the west over the high mountain ranges. But because of these high mountains, that route requires the plane to fly at an altitude of 25 to 26,000 feet. This is really close to this particular plane's maximum operating ceiling of 28,000 feet. Oh, I don't like that. Given that the aircraft was fully loaded, this route would have required the pilot to really carefully calculate fuel consumption and to avoid like mountaintops. Instead, it was customary for this type of aircraft to fly a longer 600-kilometer, 90-minute U-shaped route from Mendoza south to Malague, crossing the Planchon to the Curico in Chile, and from there north to Santiago. Given all the mitigating factors, the pilots made the decision to take the safer, longer U-shaped route. The morning of the 13th, Friday the 13th, by the way, mm. weather had not improved significantly. So the pilot delayed takeoff until 2.18 p.m. There's this weird law that um, also doesn't allow foreign military aircraft to stay longer than 24 hours. So they've either got to turn around and go back to their destination or go through the weather. What if it's like a hurricane or something? Um, They're just like, we don't care. I don't know. I don't know. But also like the weather had shored up a little bit. So they were kind of like, okay, we can probably make a decision to either go back or forward. I still think that's rude. Okay, we'll take it up with the country. I don't know. I will. I yep. will. <laughs> Jot that down to do. <laughs> um, the young men are also apparently pretty eager to get to get to their destination because while this was also like it was an exhibition match, but they also saw it as a bit of a holiday. Which oh would, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so that yeah, probably, I'm sure like nobody likes just hanging around. Oh, I don't mind hanging around the airport, but <sighs> like yeah. <laughs> So, um, as was usual, the plane flew south towards Malague, radio beacon at 18,000 feet. Lagarara radioed Malague Airport with their position and told them that they would reach the Planchon Pass at 3.21 p.m. Planchon Pass is the air traffic control handoff point from one side of the Andes to the other. So, you know how different air traffic controllers have uh-huh. like a handshake kind of situation and they hand yep. off. So, um, and they say... Hello, welcome to Japanese airspace exactly, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Welcome, Flight 571. You're at whatever. Yeah. Um, so controllers in Mendoza transfer the flight tra- tracking to Pudahuel Air Traffic Control in Santiago. Uh-huh. Once across the mountains in Chile, south of Curuco, the aircraft was supposed to turn north and initiate a descent into Pudahuel Airport in Santiago. As they flew over the Andes, clouds obstructed the mountains. Uh, the pilots were flying under instrument meteorological conditions, and this basically means that they were using their instruments to confirm location rather than visual confirmation. Yeah. But that's quite... That it's not uncommon, lot, right? Not uncommon. I mean, at night time. <clears throat> yeah, would... yeah, yeah, not uncommon. Some reports state that the co-pilot incorrectly estimated his position using dead reckoning. Um, he was actually apparently relying on radio navigation. Now, the term dead reckoning, as I understand it, means the process of calculating the current position of a moving object by using previously determined positions. 
but that's that's not what he was doing. He was apparently using this like um, instrument thing. But okay. there are some reports that say he was using dead reckoning, and that's apparently not correct. Like, no, I wasn't. Um, he did not say anything. Oh, okay. All right. So at this point, there's issues with the flying conditions, <laughs> notably weather, which was affecting visibility. Yeah. Regardless, at 3.21pm, shortly after transiting the Planchon Pass, Lagararo contacted Santiago and notified air traffic controllers that he expected to reach Curaco a minute later. Isn't it Curacao? No, no, this is this this is not spelt the same way as you're thinking. It's Curico. <laughs> they need to not have a, that. <laughs> I think everything is Curacao. It could be pronounced Curaso, but it's 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 ty- it's um, spelt C U R I C O, and the C has an accent above it. Do you know why I'm Curico. so hung up on it? Because for ages I said um, Caraco, Caraco. Yeah, me too. And, um, it haunts me. Yeah, me too. Because it was like for many years, and nobody corrected me, and no. so now I'm like Curacao, Curacao. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that right? So I hope that's right. Curacao is correct. Okay. That's how you pronounce that place. And that drink. And that drink. Yeah. But this is Curico. So he notifies air traffic controllers that he expects to be in, to, to reach Curaco a minute later. The flight time from the pass to Curico, Curico is normally 11 minutes, but only three minutes later, the co-pilot told Santiago that they were passing Curico and turning north. And so were they like the fuck no you're not well they didn't because of the handover they weren't completely sure about the timings he requested permission from air traffic control to descend the controller in santiago unaware that the flight was still over the andes authorized him to descend to eleven thousand five hundred feet do they not have like in the flight tower do they not have like something to be able to track where the plane i'm not sure this is this is um the 1970s so who knows and it's also like a small air air, and it's like you know a a military airplane so maybe there's not the same later analysis of their flight pilot of their flight path found the co-pilot had not only turned too early but had turned on too sharp an angle as well so 14 compared to 30 degree angle as the aircraft descended severe turbulence tossed the aircraft up and down Nando Parado, a passenger on board the plane, recalled hitting a downdraft, causing the plane to drop several hundred feet and out of the cloud cover. Most of the 45 on board were in their late teens and early 20s. They whooped and hollered when the plane hit turbulence. They were like throwing a rugby ball around. They were all joking around about the bumpy flight, making up songs even about it. Yeah. Um, that was until some passengers saw that the aircraft was very close to the mountain range. Mm-hmm. Um, Nando Parado says, quote, that was probably the moment when the pilot saw the Black Ridge rising dead ahead. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Roberto Canessa, another pa- passenger, later said that he thought the pilot turned north too soon and began the descent to Santiago while the aircraft was still high in the Andes. Then, quote, he began to climb until the plane was nearly vertical and it began to stall and shake. Quote, so obviously the, the pilots were like, fuck, and then fuck, just... Pull up, pull up, pull up. Yeah. 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 Quote, is it normal to fly so close? Passenger Panchito Abal asked his friend Nando Parado. Parado replied, I don't think so. Oh, did... I can just imagine the plane just sort of, like, going quiet, like people looking out the window and being like... I think people were screaming. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. So at this point in the flight, the aircraft ground collision alarm had started going off, obviously alarming all the passengers and crew as well. yeah. Indeed, they were not in the position the pilots thought they were. They had initiated descent way too early. The co-pilot applied maximum power in an attempt to gain altitude. Witness accounts and evidence at the scene indicated the plane's 
The plane struck mountain e- a mountain either two or three times. The co-pilot was able to bring the nose over the ridge, um, but at 3.34 p.m., the lower part of the tail probably clipped the ridge at about 4,200 4, metres. The next collision severed the right wing. Um, this threw... This the wing threw back at such a force that it tore off the vertical stabilizer and the tail cone. When the tail cone was ripped off, it took with it the rear part of the fuselage, which included two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin, oh my God. the galley, the baggage hold, vertical stabilizer, and horizontal stabilizers, leaving a gaping hole in the rear of the fuselage. Three passengers, the navigator and the steward, were lost with the tail section. Did they die? Yes. The aircraft continued forward and upward another 200 metres for a few more seconds. Then the left wing struck the mountain, tearing off the wing. One of the propellers sliced through the fuselage uh, as the wing it was attached to was severed. Two more passengers fell out of the open rear of the fuselage. The front part of the fuselage threw straight through the air before sliding down a steep glacier at 350 kilometres per hour. Describing, described like a high-speed toboggan. And descend- What did they call this plane? The lead sled. They sure did. Foreshadowing. Uh, And descended about 725 metres. When the fuselage collided with a snowbank, the seats were torn from their base and thrown against the forward bulkhead and each other. The impact crushed the cockpit with the two pilots inside, killing main pilot Faradis immediately. The plane fuselage came to rest on a glacier at an elevation of 3,570 metres or 11,710 feet in the Malague Department, Mendoza Province, Argentina. Holy shit. That is a violent crash. A violent, violent, scary crash. The unnamed glacier, current, at this point in time unnamed, later named Glacier de las Lagrimas or Glacier of Tears, um, is between Mount Sosnido and Vulcan Tingurica straddling the remote mountainous border between Chile and Argentina. The aircraft was 80 kilometres east of its planned route. So quite off. Yeah. Off route. So of the 45 people on the aircraft, three passengers and two crew members in the tail section were killed when it broke apart. That was Lieutenant Ramon Sal Martinez, who was the navigator, or Vito Ramirez, 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 he was the steward, Gaston Costemale, Alejo Uni, and Guido Marri. Um, that sounds a little bit French, sorry. Um, Daniel Shaw. And- <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, this is it's a like Western name. Dave. <laughs> yeah. Um, Carlos Valletta fell out of the rear fuselage. Valletta survived his fall, but stumbled down the snow-covered glacier, fell deep into the snow, and was asphyxiated. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, his body would be found by passengers later on. At least four died from the impact of the fuselage hitting the snowbank, which, as I said, ripped the remaining seats from their anchors and hurled them to the front of the plane. Um, that was team physician Dr. Francisco Francisco Nicola and his wife, Esther Nicola, Eugenia Parado and Fernando Vasquez. Eugenia Parado was Nando's mother. Remember, Nando gave a quote earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, Fernando Vasquez was, was a medical student that was flying with the crew. Pilot Ferrara's died instantly when the nose gear compressed the instrument panel against his chest, forcing his head out the window. Oh. Yep, so that would have been pretty gnarly. Um, Co-pilot Lagarara was critically injured and trapped in the crashed cockpit. He asked one of the passengers to find his pistol and shoot him, but no one was able to do it. Lagarara would pass away later that night from his injuries. 33 remained alive, with 12 dead. 
<clears throat> Although many were seriously or critically injured, with wounds uh, including broken legs, which had resulted from the aircraft seats collapsing forward against the luggage partition and the pilot's cabin. Uh, Roberto Canessa and Gustavo Zerbino, both first-year medical students, acted really quickly to assess the severity of people's wounds and treat those they could help most. Um, but it was absolute carnage and confusion. The altitude immediately caused issues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there were head injuries. One guy kept trying to just walk off, just like completely confused. Another man's calf muscle had been ripped off and was sitting in front of his shin, like within the leg. Oh. Um, the woman who was flying to her daughter's wedding is crunched between the seats. Multiple broken bones. She's screaming, but no one can get her out. She would eventually die. From crush injuries. Yep. Crush injuries. Nando Parado's head was fractured and he was unconscious. He was initially counted as one of the dead. Right. Um, Enrico. Enrico. Oh, and, then, and then he was. Then well, he, we'll find out what happens with him. Okay. Enrique Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen that, when removed, brought about six inches of intestine with it. Oh. Oh, you know, abdominal stuff gets me. So that was removed, and but then he immediately began helping others. Oh, my God. Yep. Even though he'd just lost part of his intestine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both of Arturo Noguera's legs were broken in several places. Um, unfortunately, none of the passengers with compound fractures survived. Compound pr- fractures are ones where the bone generally protrudes through the skin or there's like a, ma- a major wound. Um, so three days later, five more people had died bringing the current survival number to 28 people. Why was that? Was it like infection or something? Infections and just the severity of some injuries as well. Yeah. Like they, they were not survivable. Um, <laughs> Without like, I guess, proper medical. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So where was I? Yes. Five more people had died, bringing the current survival number to 28 people alone in the bitter cold of the Andes with no way of contacting the outside world and their planes, white fuselage, all but invisible in the snow to any would be rescuers that passed overhead. And they didn't know, like, where exactly they were. I had no idea so, where they were. So it's not like they could be like, all right, we need to walk north or... Yeah. And also they, they couldn't walk anywhere, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay. So speaking of rescuers, though, the Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service, or SARS, was notified within the hour that the flight was missing. Four planes searched that afternoon until dark. News of the missing flight reached Uruguayan media about 6pm that evening. SARS officers listened to radio transmissions and concluded the aircraft had come down in one of the most remote and inaccessible areas of the Andes and called on the Andes Rescue Group of Chile, or the CSA. On the second day, 11 aircraft from Argentina, Chile and Uruguay searched for the down flight. The search area included the group's location and a few aircraft actually flew over the crash site. The survivors tried to use lipstick recovered from the luggage to write an SOS on the roof of the aircraft, but they quit after realising that they lacked enough lipstick to make letters visible from the air. They also built a cross in the snow using luggage, um, but it was unseen by the search and rescue aircraft. The survivors actually saw three aircraft fly overhead, but they were unable to attract their attention. And none of the crews, none of the rescue crews spotted the white fuselage against the snow. The harsh conditions gave searchers little hope that they would find anyone alive and search efforts were cancelled after eight days. Eight days. Mm -hmm. These guys were still alive after Mm -hmm. eight days. Mm Mm-hmm. All 20, what, 28, yep. All 28 of them. I believe so, yep. I mean, I guess they have water. But do they? Because it's all, it's all, it's, it's ice. It's ice. It's frozen. They can't melt it. They don't have fire. You put it in your mouth and let it melt. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you what they did. Okay. (laughs) They did not do that. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, so the search and rescue team, um, 
search for a total of 142 hours and 30 minutes and the searchers concluded that there was no hope of there was little little to no hope of survival and they terminated the search they were hoping that when summer rolled around because this is in the southern hemisphere the snow would melt a little bit and they'd be able to recover the bodies that was their plan that's grim yes it is meanwhile the surviving 28 were doing everything they could to remain alive they powered up airplane seats to create shelter in the broken fuselage where they huddled day and night in a space no bigger than 2.5 by 3 meters jeez that's like the size of this table almost like a little bit bigger than this table. Tiny. Yeah. I suppose that's how you keep warm, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Fido Strouch devised a way to obtain water in freezing conditions. This is what I'm saying. So he used sheet metal from under the seats uh, and placing snow on it. This created a crude solar collector, which met- melted snow, which dripped into empty wine bottles. To prevent snow blindness, um, he improvised sunglasses using the sun visors in the pilot's cabin, wire and a brass strap. They removed the seat covers, which were partially made of wool to use against the cold. Um, They also used the seat cushions as snowshoes, and they used cologne to clean the injuries as best they could. As Roberto Canessa joked, you get very smart when you're dying. (laughs) Yeah, it's some real MacGyver stuff. Yeah. Marcelo Perez, captain of the rugby team, assumed leadership. The group were unable to travel far from the wreck as the extreme cold, malnourishment, dehydration, snow blindness, and altitude sickness prevented it. The dead were moved out. I, I suppose, sorry, I suppose it's a little bit like if you break down in the middle of the outback, yeah. they tell you to stay with the car because you're just going to die if you go for it. On a- the journey, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and, but also here, it's like it's minus 30. Yeah. They're wearing like their little blazers and yeah. their cotton T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the dead were moved outside and the survivors set up in the body of the plane. Nando Parada with the skull fracture was initially put out with the dead, but he was brought in at the last minute, just in case. And that would prove to be a life changing decision for the group. Three days after slipping into a coma due to his head, head injury, Parada woke up. Oh, my God. That's also three days without water. And yeah, like... without anything. They reckon that oh. the extreme cold prevented too much swelling on his brain imagine how you would feel waking up after like having a head fracture and also been in a coma for three days with no fluids or anything mm. like you think it's bad when you wake up like with a hangover. hungover yeah that would just be next level so parado touched his head and it felt spongy Oof. and that's because he was pressing against his brain, his brain pretty much yeah so his skull yeah was there but he was pressing it down onto his brain um but he's basically fine Regardless, he's basically okay. And he, so he woke up and he sadly learns that his best friend died, his mother died, and that his 19-year-old sister, Susanna, was severely injured. He attempted to keep her alive, but it was not successful. And after the eighth day, she succumbed to her injuries. This poor guy. This poor guy. It's like all on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his dad's back home. After Susanna. Oh my God, his poor dad. Yeah, his dad thinks the whole family's dead. Fuck. After Susanna dies, there's one woman left. Her name's Liliana, and she becomes a surrogate mother to the boys. That's really nice. I would yeah. be scared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, this, that could have been it a different could sentence. could have been yeah. ugly, but yeah. it sounds like they were nice boys. No, so. they, they were beautiful boys. So she does things like reminding them to wear their hats outside. Um, she rubs their feet after they've been out scouting to help circulation. Um, the guys adore her too. They try to insist that she sleeps in the warmest part of the plane, uh, but she refuses and she really, really helps with the morale of the group too. Yeah. 
You need a lady around. (laughs) (laughs) Nice things up. So the remaining 27 now faced severe difficulties surviving the nights when temperatures dropped to minus 30 degrees. All the passengers had lived near the sea. Some of the team members had never even seen snow before and none had experienced high altitudes. They yeah, had, they, they, would be, they would live in a fairly temperate place. Yes, exactly, yeah. Temperate to, like, tropical. It would be a little bit like if we were dropped in the middle of, like, mm. we have no experience of snow except it, you, for visiting it yeah, yeah. briefly. Yeah, they were talking um, – in one of the podcasts I was listening to, one of them goes, it's like when you go to Chicago and your snot freezes. Yeah. And then it was my favourite murder. And Georgia's like, what? That happens? And like, and then Karen was like, yeah, it's like something they warn you about. And But I wasn't warned about that when I went yeah. to Chicago. Chicago is probably the coldest place I've ever – is it the coldest place I've ever visited? I think so. It's pretty um, cool. And like even just walking outside, like I, I nearly had a panic attack yeah. because I just breathed in and was like, what the fuck? How is that so cold? I just walked yeah. back inside. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very not cold. prepared. And this is so much colder. Yeah. And they've got the altitude and the dehydration and the malnourishment. The altitude as well. Like that, I didn't even consider that yeah. to start with. But yeah. Like, Cause I mean, they're, they're at about 11,000 feet in a plane. You'd have a pressurized cabin for that. And, it, and it's not even a gradual like somebody hiking up a mountain it's like they were just dropped Dropped in in high altitude so they had nowhere near the adequate clothing um if the survivors needed to urinate during the night they were having to do so inside the fuselage in rugby balls to prevent their urine from immediately freezing to them as they pissed what yep they say they were also constantly punching each other to keep circulation up um the survivors lacked medical supplies cold weather clothing equipment or food and only had three pairs of sunglasses among them to help prevent snow blindness one of the speakers in the you're wrong about episode i listened to said that she spent like seven months on a glacier in ideal conditions. so she had like yeah full everything going for her and she had top of the range goggles to prevent snow blindness and she says that years later her vision is still not the same what yeah so these guys were really kind of up against it oh my god i didn't know it was that like i i thought it was something that would wear off um no your eyes can literally be like burned your corneas can be burned from the uv so the survivors had very little food too as i mentioned between them they had eight chocolate bars a tin of mussels three small jars of jam a tin of almonds a few dates candies dried plums and several bottles of wine that was it. During the days following the crash, they divided this into small amounts to make their meager supply last as long as possible. A typical daily ration would be a square of chocolate and an aerosol cap full of wine. Even with this strict rationing, their food stock dwindled quickly. There was no natural vegetation and no animals on either the glacier or the nearby snow-covered mountains because it was just too arid. Um, the food ran out after a week and the group tried to eat parts of the aeroplane such as cotton inside the seats and leather but they became sicker from eating these one morning parado later wrote he found himself cradling a single chocolate covered peanut quote on the first day i slowly sucked the chocolate off the peanut then i slipped the peanut into the pocket of my slacks on the second day i carefully separated the peanut halves slipping one half back into my pocket and placing the other half in my mouth I sucked gently on the peanut for hours, allowing myself only a tiny nibble now and then. I did the same thing on the third day. And when I finally nibbled the peanut down to nothing, there was no food left at all. In his memoir, Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home, Parado wrote, 
At high altitude, the body's caloric needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest with no hope of finding food, but our hunger soon grew so voracious that we searched anyway. Again and again, we scoured the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. We tried to eat strips of leather torn from the pieces of luggage, though we knew that the chemicals they'd been treated with would do us more harm than good. We ripped open seat cushions hoping to find straw, but found only inedible upholstery foam. Again and again, I came to the same conclusion. Unless we wanted to eat the clothes we were wearing, there was nothing here but aluminium, plastic, ice, and rock. And just for reference, a mountaineer who was traversing this terrain would need to consume 15,000 calories a day to sustain themselves. Yeah, because, I mean, the cold, for one. like For you, one, yeah. Just your body trying to keep itself warm. Also, at 12,000 feet, which is where they were, you dehydrate five times faster than at sea level. Really? Yeah, because they have to breathe so much quicker to get oxygen, and with every breath, they're losing moisture. Oh, my God. Yeah. They really have the odds stacked against they them. They sure do. The survivors found a small transistor radio jammed between seats on the aircraft, and crash survivor Roy Harley improvised a really long antenna using electrical cable from the plane. He heard on the news that the search was cancelled on their 11th day on the mountain. Oh, no. No. Piers Paul Reed's book, Alive, the story of the Andy survivors, describes the moment after this discovery. Quote, the others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news began to sob and pray, all except Nando Parado, who looked up calmly to the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo Nikolic came out of the aircraft and seeing their faces knew what they'd heard. Nikolic climbed, climbed through the hole in the wall of the suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey boys, he shouted, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio they've caught off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft, there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is this good news? Payers shouted angrily at Nikolic. Because it means, Nikolic said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. God. So I'll also mention here that while... Sorry, was that the captain? um, Nikolic. Could have been. Can't remember. Was this the sort of like makeshift leader? I can't remember. Takes a lot of strength to like... Be optimistic in the face of such... Yeah, and when everyone is on yeah crying yeah. and stuff to be the one that's like nah 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 we're gonna get out of here yeah surely in his head he was like we're a- fucked apparently liliana was also really instrumental in this moment to keep morale up i'll also mention here that while the official search had been called off family of the missing were still searching okay one dad just went out into the mountains on horseback and started oh looking yeah um other families were consulting psychics or organizing prayer vigils the family had not lost hope yet knowing that the official rescue efforts had been called off and faced with starvation and death those still alive agreed that should they die the others could consume their bodies to live with no choice the survivors began to eat the bodies of their dead friends yeah Knessa later described the decision to eat the pilots and their dead friends and family members quote our common goal was to survive but what we lacked was food we had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plane and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates, preserved outside in the snow and ice, contained vital, life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered whether we were going mad to even contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages, or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our fear, end quote. Um, The fact that they... um 
that they agonized over it so much though and they were all roman catholic they were all very devout yeah so it was particularly um difficult for them yeah Canessa used broken glass from the aircraft windshield as a cutting tool, and he set the example by swallowing the first matchstick-sized strip of frozen flesh. Later on, several others did the same. The next day, more survivors ate the meat offered to them, but a few refused to eat it or or just simply could not keep it down. Parado protected the corpses of his mother and sister, um, and they were never eaten. So they dried the meat in the sun, which made it a little more palatable. I was because say, obviously they don't have a fire. Just like frozen, frozen flesh. Yeah, raw flesh. Um, they were initially so revolted by the experience that they could only eat skin, muscle, and fat. But when the supply of flesh was diminished, they also ate hearts, lungs, and brains. So yeah, all the passengers were Roman Catholic. Some feared eternal, eternal damnation. According to Survivor Reed, some rationalized the act of cannibalism as equivalent to the Eucharist the body and blood of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. Others justified it according to a Bible verse found in John fifteen thirteen. quote, no man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. As if things couldn't get much worse for the group, 17 days after the crash near midnight on 29th of October, an avalanche struck the aircraft oh, as the survivors slept. Jesus Christ. It filled the fuselage and killed eight people. Eight. Yes. That's more than the original crash killed, right? No, the original crash crash killed 12, but still. Enrique Platero, Liliana Methol. Oh, no, Liliana. Gustavo Nicolish, Daniel Maspons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, and Marcelo Perez. So Perez was the um, the captain. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't Nicolish. The death of Perez, the team captain and leader of survivors, along with the loss of Liliana Methol, who had nursed the survivors, quote, like a mother and a saint, was really, really hard for the survivors. How many are left? I'll tell you in a minute. I've got it written somewhere. So the avalanche completely buried the fuselage and filled the interior to within one meter of the roof. And all the guys are stuck in there, right? So apparently within seconds, the snow hardens and the top of the snow ice is over. What? Yeah. So those who survived the initial impact began to dig out survivors who are now trapped under meters of relatively compacted snow. There were some who were trapped under the snow, sure they were going to die, and many of them described it as relief. Um, the survivors trapped inside the su- inside soon realized they were running out of air as well. So it's just one thing after another. Yeah. Parado managed to find a metal pole from the luggage wraps and they were able to get one of the windows from the pilot's cabin open enough to poke a hole through the snow, providing ventilation to the group. With considerable difficulty, on the morning of the 31st of October, they dug a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface. This takes them two fucking days to dig out. And just as they breach the surface, they encounter a furious blizzard that they weren't able to get out. So they were then stuck get inside. <laughs> Somebody is like taking the piss like you would honestly be like what else do you want to send like some monster over the hill or yeah something yeah some to- yeti yeah. yeah so for three days the remaining survivors were trapped inside the extremely cramped space with no within the buried fuselage with about one meter headroom um, and then all the people digging them out as well are using calories to be yeah, doing yeah, that yeah. hard work of yep. digging them out and they were in there with the corpses of those who who were who had died in the avalanche So with no other choice, on the third day, they began to eat the raw flesh of their newly dead friends. Parado later said, quote, this is so gross. It was soft and greasy, streaked with blood and bits of wet gristle. I gagged hard when I placed it in my mouth. 
So they are eventually able to exit the fuselage after the blizzard had passed and their morale is lower than ever. With Perez dead, three men, Daniel Fernandez and cousins Eduardo and Fido Stroch, assumed the leadership. Fractures do begin to show within the kind of group, but they essentially remain cohesive. Constipation is a problem amongst the survivors, and they have a contest to say who will hold out the longest before bowel movements. <laughs> the longest? 34 days. Oh, <laughs> God. So I do think it's very sweet that even in the worst of conditions, the absolute lowest you can be, that they're still trying to make little games. Oh, and, and, like, and they like the whole time they're like pranking each other and like yeah. that they, they are they seem like the best boys. Like yeah. yeah. So the men resolve to try and dig out the dead under the avalanche snow, but obviously you can't see through snow. So what they do is they all pee in one little spot, which creates a little tunnel that yeah. they can then look down to see if there's anyone yeah. down the bottom, which yeah. I think was really clever. Yeah. Before the avalanche, a few of the survivors became insistent that their only way of survival would be to climb over the mountains and search for help. Because of the co-pilot's dying statement that the aircraft had passed Curico, the, be- the group believed that the Chilean countryside was just a few kilometres away to the west. They were actually more than 89 kilometres to the east, yeah. deep in the Andes. Yeah, because the co-pilot was, was wrong. wrong. Yeah. yeah. Um, the snow that had buried the fuselage gradually melted away as summer arrived survivors made so they managed to make it to summer yes yes survivors made several brief expeditions in the immediate vicinity of the aircraft in the first few weeks after the crash but they found that the altitude sickness dehydration snow blindness malnourishment and the extreme cold during the nights made it traveling any significant distance an impossible task but as the group knew that the only way they would get off the mountain was um if they got themselves off the passengers decided that a few members would seek help Several survivors were determined to join the expedition team, including Canessa, one of the two medical students, but others were less willing or unsure of their ability to withstand such a physically exhausting ordeal. Um, Numa Tercati and Antonio Vizinten were chosen to accompany Canessa uh, and Parado. Parado went as well. However, Tercati's leg was stepped on and the bruise had become septic, so he was unable to join the expedition. So Canessa, Parado and Vizintin were among the strongest and were allocated larger rations of food and the warmest clothes. They were also spared the daily manual labour around the crash site that was essential for the group's survival so they could build their strength. At Canessa's urging, they waited nearly seven days to um, allow for higher temperatures. Just a side note here, the men made warmer footwear out of human forearms. I'm not including that to say that I think it's gross. I'm including it to show like the, the desperation, the, the, desperation, and, the yeah. will to survive, the inventiveness. Yeah. No, um, no, no. I know. Mm. It's just that it's like I mean, horrifying. For our listeners as well. Like, it I'm not. It would have been horrifying for them too. Of course. Of course. But I'm not saying if I was in their position, I would do anything differently. Mm. Like, I mean, yeah. The expedition hoped to get to Chile to the west, but a large mountain lay west of the crash site, persuaded them to try heading east first. They hoped that the valley they were in would make a U-turn and allow them to start walking west to Chile at some point. On the 15th of November, after several hours of walking east, the trio found the largely intact tail section of the aircraft, containing the galley. This was downhill of the fuselage. Inside and nearby, they found luggage containing a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes, extra clothes, comic books, and a little medicine. Oh my God, finally, something good. Yeah. They also found the aircraft's two-way radio. The group decided to camp that night inside the tail section. They built a fire and stayed up late reading comic books. They continued east the next morning, but on the second night of the expedition, which was their first night sleeping outside, they nearly froze to death. 
So after some debate the next morning, they decided that it would be wiser to to return to the tail, remove the aircraft's batteries and take them back to the fuselage so they might power up the radio and make an SOS call to Santiago. Mm -hmm. Upon returning to the tail, the trio found that the 24-kilogram batteries were too heavy to take back to the fuselage, which lay uphill from the tail section. So what they decided instead is um, that they would return to the fuselage, disconnect the radio, um, take it back to the tail, connect it to the batteries, and then try it that way. Uh-huh. One of the team members, Roy Harley, was an amateur electronics enthusiast, and they recruited his help in the endeavor. Yeah. He was really reluctant to go. He was kind of like, he wasn't really handling it well, Roy, ha- yeah. Roy Harley. He was, he was also the youngest. I think he was like 19. Um, but he eventually agreed to go. Unknown to any of the team members, the aircraft's electrical system used 115 volts AC, while the battery they had located produced 24 volts DC. I don't know what that means, but okay. I'm assuming it, it means, means the plan was futile from yep. the beginning. Um, so after several days of trying to make the radio work, they gave up and returned to the fuselage with the knowledge that they would have to climb out of the mountains if they were, have, if they were to have any hope of being rescued. On the return trip, they were struck by a blizzard again. Um, at one point, Harley laid down to die. He was like, I can't go on. I'm, fuck me. Like, just leave me here. But Parado got super angry with him, started beating him up, being like, you, you motherfucker, like, you're going to get up. You're, like, damning us to death too if you, if you lie down here. Mm. Fuck you. Get up. Was, like, actually beating him up. Yeah. So um, it worked, though. Parado, he got up. Yeah, Parado gets up, keeps going, and as harsh as it was, all three make it back to the fuselage. Yeah. Did they bring the chocolates and stuff? Back? Yeah, they did. Okay. <laughs> I was just wondering if they ate them all to themselves. No, no, like, no. Oh, guys, we're so hungry. No, it's <laughs> like these chocolate boys all around the yeah, mouth. <laughs> yeah, like on The Simpsons. Yeah. These boys are so good. They're like, they're very, they're, they're teammates. They're yeah. all like everything for the greater good. And yeah. Like, although I did read at one point, um, they were, they were eating, uh, they were sharing a tube of toothpaste as dessert um, amongst the group. And then they found out that one of them had a whole tube to himself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... On November 15th, Arturo Noguera died. Which one's he? Um, just one of the guys. Okay. Um, and three days later, Rafael Ecavarin died, both from gangrene due to their infected wounds. Yeah. On day 60. 60. Two months they've been out there. Yep. Um, Numa Tercati, whose extreme revulsion for eating human meat dramatically accelerated his physical decline. He died on 11th of December, weighing only 25 kilos. Whoa. Yeah. That's 55 pounds. 25 kilos. And he was like, I'm guessing like a full grown man. Yeah. Yeah. He would have been literally bones. Skin and bones. Yeah. Those left knew that they would die if they did not find help. And they still figured they needed to head west across the mountains. It seemed an impossible task. None of them were mountaineers, all were horribly weak, and they had no suitable clothing or equipment, but there was no alternative. So they fashioned a sled. They sewed together material for a sleeping bag out of insulation bats from the plane. Um, They basically made one massive three-person sleeping bag, so they could use body heat as well. Um, And they selected those who would make the march. After weeks of preparation and aborted efforts, the group, initially three, set off to the west in the direction of Chile actually in the direction of Chile or what they thought was the direction? I think, I think in the direction of Chile, actually. The men have no climbing training whatsoever. They don't know how to avoid crevasses or avalanches. They just pick a mountain and start climbing. They managed to pick one of the tallest mountains in the Andes. (laughs) These guys can't get a break. I know. At points it was so steep that they had their chests pressed to the mountain to avoid falling backwards. 
Um, they were also climbing way too fast, roughly twice as fast as what is recommended to avoid altitude-related sickness or issues like pulmonary embolisms. Um, but regardless, they persevere. They were climbing in these chutes that were basically avalanche funnels, unbeknownst to them. Um, at any moment, they could have been killed. They were also continuously coming up against false summits. Do you know what they are? It's I'm like, guessing yeah. it's like you think you're at the top and then... And it keeps mm. going, yeah. They set up camp near the actual summit. The next morning, Visentin and Parado left Canessa at the camp to save supplies and continue to the summit. Um, fighting cold and crippling altitude sickness, the two men somehow ascended the peak, which was 15,000 feet. They surveyed the surroundings. They expectantly looked around, hoping to see the green valleys on the other side of the Andes, but they saw little more but white mountains and a valley that wound through them. It would just be like... You'd be so... Hopeless. Yes. Yeah. They'd climbed a mountain on the border of Argentina and Chile, meaning the trekkers were still tens of kilometres from the green valleys of Chile. Visentin and Parado rejoined Canessa, where they'd slept the night before. At sunset, while sipping the cognac that they had found in the tail section, Parado said, quote, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? <laughs> the next morning, the three men could see that the hike was going to take much longer than they'd had originally planned. They were running out of food, so Visentin agreed to return to the crash site, leaving his remaining portions to the other two. Um, the return was entirely downhill, and using an aircraft seat as a makeshift sleigh, he returned to the crash site. The path that had taken them days to traverse takes him only an hour on the sled. On the summit, Parado told Canessa, quote, We may be walking to our deaths, but I'd rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Canessa agreed, quote, You and I are friends, Nando. We've been through so much. Now let's go die together. They're so brave. So they followed the ridge towards the valley in the direction of the two mountains that didn't have snow on them, and they descended a considerable distance. Uncertainly, they picked their way down the other side of the mountain and began to stumble along the glacier down below, trying to force themselves onwards, but weakening day by day, until on December 18th, they heard running water. It was the mouth of a river, of a river which they began to follow. Those who've watched Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls know that if you find a river and you follow it downhill, you're bound to find civilization. So the next day, they saw signs of humanity. Oh my god. A rusted soup can, a horseshoe, cow dung, and a herd of cows... And then finally, on the evening of December 20, they see three men on horseback on the other side of the river. No. But the roar of the river is so loud they can't really hear each other. But they saw them, right? They saw them. The guys so, on the horses saw them? Yes. Okay. And so the guys of the, on the horses, they, they yell, manana, which means tomorrow. I knew that one. <laughs> <laughs> so ostensibly the men think they'll be back tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. The next day the men did return. They scribbled a note, attached it and a pencil to a rock with some string and threw the message across the river. Parado replied, <clears throat> get ready for this. I'm going to do it in Spanish first and then in English. Okay. Uh, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Prepare yourselves if you're Spanish. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Okay. Olga. <laughs> Olga. Sorry. <laughs> Vengo de no habían que cayó en las montañas. Soy uruguayo. Hace ten días que estamos caminando. Tengo un amigo herido arriba. En el avión quedan 14 personas heridas. Tenemos que salir rápido de aquí y no sabemos cómo. No tenemos comida. Estamos débiles. Cuando nos van a buscar arriba, por favor, no podemos ni caminar. ¿Dónde estamos? And what that means in English is... I, I, can I tell you the bits that I understood? Yeah. 14 people and please. <laughs> 14 personas. Yeah. I don't, it's, it was so embarrassing. I realized when I said 14, I said 14. 
I saw this thing the other day that was um, a girl who did really bad in her French exam. She was like, <laughs> I think I saw that. And, and the teacher was like, um, don't feel too bad. The person before you said it in English, just with a French accent. <laughs> I love that. So what that means is I come from a plane that fell in the skies. Sorry, fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? Sergio Catalan, one of the men across the river, cannot believe that anyone from the crash is alive. So they're obviously like, holy shit, these are those people. They're aware of it, yeah. Yeah. Astounded, the men ride for 10 hours to get help for the survivors. Wow. So when the news broke out that the, that the survivors had emerged from the crash of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, the story of their 72-day ordeal drew international attention. A flood of international reporters descended on the area and reporters clamoured to interview Parado and Canessa about the crash and the events that followed. The Chilean Air Force provided three helicopters to assist with the rescue. They flew in heavy cloud cover under instrument conditions to Los Martinez de Curico, where the army interviewed Parado and Canessa about the location of the crash site. It turns out there was another route out of the mountains which would have brought them to a road within three days rather than the 11 that they had just enjoyed. Yeah, but... It's always a way, isn't it? Yeah, and they have um, no idea. They had no they idea, are. of course, no. Um, when the fog lifted at about noon, Parado volunteered to lead the, lead the helicopters to the crash site despite being petrified of getting back inside an aircraft. Oh, yeah. Um, he had brought the pilot's flight chart and guided the helicopters up the mountain to the location of the remaining survivors. One helicopter remained behind in reserve. The pilots were astounded at the difficult terrain the two men had crossed to reach help. Back at the crash site, the guys hear on the radio that the expeditioners have been found. Oh, my God. They immediately smoke the cigars that they've been saving and they start planning pranks to play <laughs> <laughs> to play on the rescuers when they arrive. They try and clean themselves up as best they can and they become aware of how gruesome the scene is. So they try and clean that up too. Like there's like, like body the dead parts. bodies and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But just then someone screams, there's a wall of white coming towards them. No. <laughs> Give them a break. It's just Fido playing a prank. He's got a he's got a fire extinguisher and he's like spraying it at them and he's like, "There's a wall, there's an ex- uh, uh, uh. Oh my god! They just they can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Would you get a little bit pissed off? Like, yeah, you like, can you can you turn it off for one day? <laughs> um, on the afternoon of twenty second of December, nineteen seventy two, two helicopters carrying search and rescue personnel reached the survivors. And was what one of them? Was the guy on there with Parado, him? yeah. Yeah. The steep terrain only permitted the pilot to touch down with a single skid. Do you know what the skids are? They're like the legs almost. Yeah, those yeah. like the two bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Due to the altitude and weight limits, the two helicopters were only able to take half of the survivors. So four members of the search and rescue team volunteered to stay with the seven survivors that, are, that were remaining on the mountain for one more night. Mm-hmm. So the survivors slept a final night in the fuselage with the search and rescue party. Did they play a prank on them? I don't know, probably. I mean, (laughs) this team, like, fuck. The second flight of helicopters arrived the following morning at daybreak. They carried the remaining survivors to hospitals in Santiago for evaluation. They were treated for a variety of conditions, including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. The remaining survivors were were rescued after more than two months after the crash. Uh, Just before Christmas, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, 23rd of December. Yeah. So 
because these people haven't been through enough, the survivors, of which in the end there were 16, faced intense backlash once it came out that they'd been forced to resort to cannibalism. Yeah, I remember hearing about that, that mm. some people were like, that's disgusting. Mm. Like, How could you? Like, yeah. um, fuck off. On Why don't you go spend two months on a mountain starving to death? So on the 26th of, De- of December, two pictures taken by members of Cuerpo de Socorro Andino, which means the Andean Relief Corps, Two pictures of a half-eaten human leg were printed on the front page of two Chilean na- newspapers, <sighs> El Mercurio and La Tercera de la Hora. One of the headlines read, May God forgive them. Oh, fuck off. People were disgusted and outraged, and the story became more about the cannibalism than the incredible survival. But after the survivors held a press conference and explained their ordeal, the Catholic Church actually came to their defense and was like, we're all good with it. <laughs> it, it. They were like, no, we don't condone eating humans, but they were like, they did what they had to do to survive. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like um, a, a shred of like you compassion or like, you don't have to think in black and white. Yeah. Like there are different scenarios for things. This exactly. Um, so they, the survivors explained their ordeal in this press conference and ultimately the outcry did subside and people became okay with it. Yeah. So that dad that, thought that he'd lost everyone everyone he at least had his son yeah back. his son yeah yeah and um i think i'll talk about it later but um the dad and the son do make a, a journey to that location each year oh wow the authorities and victims families decided to bury the remains of those who died at the crash site in a common grave um not far from the fuselage 13 bodies were untouched while another 15 were mostly skeletal 12 men and a Chilean priest were transported to the crash site on the 18th of January 1973. Family members were unfortunately not allowed to attend, um, just given the difficulties getting there. Yeah. They had to only take, um, you know, people that were going to bury mm-hmm. and that. They dug a grave about 400 to 800 metres from the aircraft fuselage at a site they thought was safe from avalanches. Close to the grave, they built a simple stone altar and staked an orange iron cross on it. They placed a plaque on the pile of rocks inscribed, El mundo a sus hermanos uruguayos cerca o Dios de ti, which means the world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O oh God, to you. The party doused the remains of the fuselage in gasoline and set it alight. Eduardo Strouch later mentioned in his book, Out of Silence, that the bottom half of the fuselage, which was covered in snow and untouched by the fire, was still there during his first visit back in 1995. Mm, trauma. Mm. Ricardo... Echavarin, or Echavarin, the father of one of the victims, had received word from a survivor that his son actually wished to be buried at home. Unable to obtain official permission to retrieve his son's body, Echavarin mounted an expedition on his own with hired guides. He had prearranged with the priest who had buried his son to mark the bag containing his son's remains. Upon his return to the abandoned hotel Termas with his son's remains, he was arrested for grave robbing. It's his son. A federal judge and the local mayor intervened to obtain his release and Echavarin later obtained legal permission to bury his son where he fucking wanted. Mm -hmm. The survivor's courage under extremely adverse conditions has been described as, quote, a beacon of hope to their generation, showing what can be accomplished, accomplished with persistence and determination in the presence of unsurpassable odds. And, like, the fact that they all pulled together as well and they never turned against each other. And I think that is kind of... I'm I'm so shocked that that was not the story rather than cannibalism. Yeah, I know, right? In 1973, mothers of 11 young people who died in the crash founded the Our Children Library in Uruguay to promote reading and teaching. Family members of victims of the flight founded 
Fundacion Viven in 2006 to preserve the legacy of the flight, memory of the victims and support organ donation. So the families of the people that were eaten were like, it's okay. Yeah. 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 Um, Look, if you were in a crash and you died and people had to eat you to survive. You'd be like, go ahead, eat her. Like, look, all right. You'd be like, I know she's got some meaty calf. (laughs) Go for there first. Yeah, those those good So the crash location attracts hundreds of people from all over the world who pay tribute to the victims and survivors and learn about how they survived. The trip to the location takes three days. Four-wheel drive vehicles transport travellers from the village of El Sosniado to Puesto Araya near the abandoned Hotel Termas. Uh, From there, the travellers ride on horseback through some though some choose to walk. They stop overnight on the mountain at El Barroso Camp. On the third day, they reach the La, Las Lagrimas Glacier, where the remains of the accident are found. In March 2006, the families of those aboard the flight had a black obelisk monument built at the crash site, memorialising those who had lived and died. In 2007, the Chilean Sergio Catalan, who initially found the trekkers and went for help, was completely adopted into the fold of the guys in the friendship. He was interviewed on Chilean television during which he revealed that he had um, hip arthrosis and Canessa, who had since become a doctor and other survivors, raised funds to pay for a hip replacement operation for him. Catalan unfortunately died on the 11th of February 2020 at the ripe old age of 91. There was this really cute story about Sergio Catalan and um, a couple of the guys and in 2005 on his um, 50th wedding anniversary they flew to his town and surprised him and they surprised him by walking up to him on the street and going oh, help we're lost can you help us like oh my god <laughs> um, I love that they have like managed to somehow keep a sense of humor about yeah. it Nando Parado became a race car driver. He also remains best friends with Roberto Canesso. Canessa, sorry. Are they the two that, that went um, searching? Yep. yep. And is the godfather to Canessa's son, who plays on the old Christians rugby team. Oh, wow. After his ordeal, Roberto Canessa became a top pediatric cardiologist, inspired to succeed in spite of his hardships. He felt so grateful that he survived and says his experience taught him to do something positive every day. He told National Geographic, quote, every day when I look at myself in the mirror, I thank God the same old jerk is staring back at me. (laughs) The majority of the 16 are still alive today, with many having featured on various TV shows, movies, and in many books. They'd be pretty old now, hey? Yeah, they are. In their 70s. Okay, so not that old. Hmm. Um, the survivors try to get together each year on the 22nd of December to honour the lost. They consider this date their collective birthday. Oh. And that is the story of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crash. Wow. Yeah, I, I knew about that story because the main thing I remember really was people having a go at them for... For ca- the cannibalism. It, yeah, yeah, but... But I do remember everyone being like, well, what the fuck were they meant to do? Mm. Yeah. So the, one of the guys was like, um, initially they were really worried that their, that their family were disgusted because their family were a little bit shocked that they'd done that. And then, and so that the guys that were survived and saw that reaction were, were like, what would they rather we were dead? Yeah. Like, is that yeah. what they would rather? And, mm. and they were really kind of like, it took a while for everyone, even their families to come around. The but. thing is in my head, I kind of think about it. It is a little bit like organ donation, like, you yeah. know, it's, it's not the same, but in a way, because they're already dead. And so it's like, you can use their body to save another life or yeah, exactly. Or just let them rot. Like, yeah, that's it. Um, Once they're dead, they're dead. There was even like some really nasty tabloid-esque kind of 
articles that were suggesting that maybe they'd made up that second avalanche to eat the weaker people, like to just kill them and eat the weaker people. Yeah. But yeah, no, eventually. See, that's the thing. It's not like they killed anyone. No. They didn't kill anyone. No, no. And there were still like untouched bodies there. So it's if they were run, if they'd run out of bodies, yeah. then there'd surely be no spare bodies. They there. were clearly disgusted by it and yeah. showing restraint. Like yeah. it's not like they just were hoeing in and like, exactly. you know, yeah. cooking them up and stuff. Like, yeah. Well, they couldn't cook them, but yeah. Yeah. No. So that's the story. Um, Dan, I hope you enjoyed that. Cause he suggested it. Yeah. That's a good one. That um, is a good one. And it's a long one. So, so we're at an hour 14. Fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to have time to do the second one. All right. Well, All right. Well, thanks for listening to that mammoth episode. Appreciate your attendance class. Thank you. Hopefully in the next episode, I'll again be well, somewhat well. <laughs> I'll probably be sick by then though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.